Good morning. Um, I'm Pastor Meg, and I am so excited to be sharing with you this morning about Julian of Norwich, who uh, is one of my favorite saints, um, known in my household, at least, as the cat lady, um, when trying to differentiate her from the other saints in the godly play little um, group of saints that we have, because um, she's the one with the cat. Um, but I promise I will I will keep the cat comments to a minimum. <laughs> um, because really, the coolest thing about Julian is is her theology. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Before I go any further, I'd like to read the scripture for this morning for us. Uh, it is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 24. Brothers and sisters, we have confidence that we can enter the Holy of Holies by means of Jesus' blood through a new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, which is his body. And we have a great high priest over God's house. Therefore, let's draw near with a genuine heart, with the certainty that our faith gives us, since our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies are washed with pure water. Let's hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, because the one who made the promises is reliable. And let us consider each other carefully for the purpose of sparking love and good deeds. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, if you know me very well, you probably know that I am a big history nerd, that I love history, um, and that I also am a teacher. So I, uh, and my favorite subject to teach is history. Um, so when doing these Y'all Saints sermons, it is always a temptation for me to spend a really long time uh, reconstructing the historical period that the saint lived in and giving you all kinds of nifty biographical information. Um, so I have tried really hard to restrict myself um, to only give you three main facts about the Middle Ages when Julian lived and three uh three major facts about her life before we kind of dive into her theology. Um, but if you want to sit with me at Potluck and we can eat Thanksgiving food and I can talk to you about the Middle Ages and or Julian of Norwich for as long as you want to chat. <laughs> um, but Julian, okay, so Julian lived in the Middle Ages, uh, which... In order to make sense of her life and her theology, um, there are three major things that I want to point out about the Middle Ages. Um, one is that during this time, um, the plague swept across Europe um, and in England, Norwich, England is where Julian lived. Um, it, it was a really horrible, painful, scary way to die. Um, it wasn't really understood how it spread, but the people at the time knew it had something to do with being close to um, the bodies of people who were sick or dying or who had died. Um, so there was a lot of fear and a lot of confusion around that. Um, and uh, yeah, it, I mean, it killed nearly a third of the population. Um, so there wasn't anyone at the time who wasn't touched by um, that profound loss um, because so many people did die at the time. Um, the second thing that I want to make sure we understand about the Middle Ages is um, that there was a really strict um, class structure. 
Um, the feudalism was the you know, economic system we were working under at the time. Um, but uh, the belief at the time was that the classes, the social classes were physically different from one another. So there were some people who were born to rule over others, to make decisions for other people, but, um, but not to actually do physical labor. And there are other people who were um, physically and, uh, you know, mentally better suited for manual labor, um, but not to actually make decisions about their own lives or, you know, of course, obviously not lives of anybody else. Um, you know, and, and you also had this priestly class um, and, and they were the people who were um, suited for prayer and for uh, thought on theological matters. Um, but again, we're not suited for any kind of physical labor. So, um, these social classes were very, very entrenched, um, and there was no real avenue for any kind of upward mobility. Um, so the, the king and, you know, lords, uh, at the time, um, when there were sort of uh, various peasant revolts, as as happened a few times, um, they were always really brutally suppressed. Um, so there was a lot of violence in that way. And then finally, the church. Um, the church and the government were completely enmeshed. Um, the church reinforced social hierarchy um, to the point that uh, your social class determined uh, when and even whether or not you were able to receive communion, um, those in the peasant class uh, never received the cup themselves. Uh, it was uh, the priest took it sort of ceremonially for them. Um, and uh, also the, um, you know, the, the priestly class spoke in Latin um, and the Bible was only available in Latin. Um, it was uh, against the law to translate the Bible into English, which is the, the language that the peasant class spoke. Um, it was also against the law to speak or write about the things of God, theology, uh, anything, you know, in that in that arena in any language other than Latin. And, and anyone who who dared to do any of these things would have been burned uh, as a heretic. So, yeah, what a time to be alive. <laughs> Um, so with this backdrop, um, I, I want to give you a quick snapshot of Julian's life, um, particularly her life before, um, before she started writing. So we don't know anything about Julian's life, um, Julian's early life. The first thing we know about Julian is that at the age of 30, um, she became very sick and, um, they called in the priest to deliver last rites. Um, and, and another note, um, that is important to kind of understand some of the, um, the issues that folks were wrestling with at the time. Um, it was believed that, that if you were not able to have a priest say last rites over you before you died, that you, you had no chance of, of, getting into heaven. So, so that was another real anxiety around the plague that so many people died. Um, a lot of priests died because, you know, of their proximity to people who were dying. 
Um, and so there were many, many people who died of the plague who were not able to um, to have those last rites said over them. And so um, their loved ones believed that, um, you know, they, they would never see them again, um, you know, in, in the afterlife, that, that they were condemned to hell because they um, they were not able to, to have a priest say last rites over them. Um, but this was not the case with Julian. Um, the priest arrived and uh, held a crucifix in front of her face and Julian gazed on it and she believed that she was dying, um, that she was about to die and sort of was prepared to do so. Um, and she had a series of, of visions, these, um, I think it was like 14 or 15, um, really vivid, uh, visions that, uh, that she had relating to, um, mostly relating to Jesus on the cross, but, but also other things relating to God as well. Um, and the reason that we know about these visions is because she did not die. She, uh, after she had these visions, she, um, miraculously recovered and, um, decided to dedicate the rest of her life to God by being an anchoress. So anchoress is not it's not really a job that people have today, um, but it, it was something that was done in the Middle Ages. Um, if you were a man, then you would be an anchorite and women would or were anchoresses. Um, but uh, it means that you commit to spending the remainder of your life uh, in uh, a small, usually about 12 by 12 cell that was attached to a church. And um the person would, I mean, it was built around the person. There was no exit. There were no doors. Um, there were just two windows and one window opened into the church so that, um, the anchoress could see the mass and hear the mass being performed. And then the other window opened out onto the street. Um, and Norwich was a really busy town. And so there would be lots of people coming and going and, and they would have sought out Julian for um, advice uh, or prayer or spiritual direction. But in terms of um, like human companionship, Julian had none. Uh, no one else was in there with her. Um, she was only allowed a cat to uh, help keep the mice at bay. Um, and that, uh, legend has it that she became very fond of her cat, uh, which is why she's always pictured with a cat uh, whenever you see her pictures of her iconography that involves her. She, she always has a cat. Um, but really the life of an anchoress was, uh, a life that was not as reclusive as say like the desert mothers and fathers, um, where you completely separate yourself from the world, but it was marked by a lot of solitude. Um, and, uh, and Julian, in that solitude really experienced um, and wrote about uh, a deep level of intimacy with God. Um, she wrote two books in her life, um, both on the same subject. So as uh, pretty soon after she had these visions, she wrote what's known as the short text. She just wrote out everything that, that she saw. Um, and then uh, in the, over the next 20 years, she, um, through prayer and study, um, 
unpacked what she had seen and and what it meant. Um, and and her visions are kind of like parables, you know. There's there are these um, there's these layers of meaning to them. Um, and so she wrote what is now known as the long text, um, which has more um, more elaboration and more interpretation of some of the things uh, that she saw. Um, and those two things together are known today as revelations of divine love. Um, I think she just called them the showings. Um, since they were things that God had shown to her. But um, they were written in English, which at the time would have gotten her burned at the stake if, if it was known that, um, that she was doing this. Uh, I mean, you know, not to mention that she was a woman. Um, women don't write things. Um, so, so that's sort of the the short version of um, her context and her life um, but what I really want to focus on um, and I, I really only tell you those things to to sort of help us understand um, her theology and her some of her teachings um, mother Julian has been a really helpful companion to me personally um, over the last couple of years, and especially over the last few weeks of really studying her more closely to prepare for this message. Um, and I really wanted to share with you a few insights from her writings that have been particularly meaningful to me. Um, and I, I have a few sort of um, general topics that that she or themes that she likes to write about. And I'll have some quotes um, in on the PowerPoint slides, I'm not going to read all the quotes out loud. But I just wanted to have um, Julian's words available if you were interested in in reading them, but I'll I'll summarize them. Um, so don't feel like you need to like, you know, read, read them word for word unless you just particularly would like to. Um, so the first, and I think probably the most foundational thing that Julian writes about is the significance of the blood of Jesus and the way in which this reveals the motherhood of God. So the cross is the first thing that Julian saw in her visions. Um, you know, she's, she was on, on her deathbed and she's looking at the crucifix. So obviously she sees um, an image of Jesus on the cross, but in her mind's eye, she felt as if she were at the foot of the cross when Jesus was being crucified. And as part of that vision, she sees a whole lot of blood. Um, you know, and she, she writes about the copious blood. <laughs> um, now, I'm not going to lie. I personally am pretty weirded out by blood. Um, always have been. When I was in school, when I was in high school biology, I had like special permission just to step out of the room whenever I needed to. Um, when things got a little too gross, because I, I just, I don't. I don't do well with um, talking about or seeing blood. Um, I've gotten better as a as a parent because I've I've had to be able to take care of other people. But um, you know, even in church settings, um, in college I went to a Baptist church, and um, when I first started attending, they sang a lot of like the old Baptist hymns that involve blood. So like fountains of blood, rivers of blood blood washing people clean, you know, lots of blood hymns. And, and I was really uncomfortable <laughs> with it. Um, 
I, I mean, I got used to it eventually, but I, I, I never really warmed up to any of those hymns. Um, and, you know, even in passages like our scripture today, you know, it's this powerful image of um, Jesus's body as the curtain, you know, between us and the Holy of Holies and his body being torn into just like that curtain was um, and and his broken body and his blood being the way through for us, the way for us to to have union with God. Um, and even, I mean, it, it creeps, me, creeps me out a little. Um, but Julian has helped me to accept and even find security and delight in the blood of Jesus. You know, when Jesus, or when Julian sees Jesus on the cross, she sees everything that happened before and everything that has happened since you know sort of like all time is is compressed she sees it almost from from god's perspective like like she's outside of time um so jesus who is suffering on the cross is also jesus who is resurrected and triumphant um so there are layers of meaning to the blood of Jesus and different facets to what she perceives in the blood of Jesus. Um, one is Jesus in solidarity with our sufferings. I mean, if you think about how much physical blood Julian must have seen in her life uh, leading up to her time as an anchoress, um, you know, with the plague and people dying and um the brutality of these peasant revolts and people trying to rise up just to, you know, establish basic human rights for themselves and, and being brutally killed. Um, you know, people being burned at the stake, you know, all of this, uh, all of this blood. Um, and Jesus in his crucifixion willingly joins us there, joins us in our, even in our physical suffering um, in a really real way. Um, you know, another facet or, or layer of meaning in the blood of Jesus is, um, the blood and the water of a birthing mother. Um, you know, there, there is blood and there is water at a birth and it, it, that's, that's supposed to be that way. You know, nothing has gone wrong if those things are happening at a birth. Um, so in this way, blood is, is redemptive and generative, um, and, when we are covered in that blood and that water, we are, we are in the place of the newborn child who is, is safe and held. Um, Julian also saw blood simply as proof of God's love, God's mother love. Um, you know, Julian understood that Jesus was born in a male body and lived as a man and resurrected as a man. And, you know, not arguing about that, but there was something about the quality of that kind of love, a love that would sacrifice oneself for one's children that she saw as a, as a specifically mothering type of love. Um, and so she, she talked and she wrote about Jesus as our father, you know, God, God as our father and also as our mother. Um, and her, her main example of that mothering love uh, was the crucifixion. Um, blood also is liberation, you know, and that again goes back to the passage that, that we read to start. Um, 
the blood of Jesus uh, clears our conscience before God and gives us freedom from sin. Um, you know, and, and thinking of Jesus's blood in all of these ways, it, it really, for Julian, Jesus' blood was something that was comforting because it was evidence of God's loving care for us. It wasn't anything to be afraid of. It wasn't anything to be repulsed by. Um, it, it was something that, that could be a comfort to us. Um, Julian also said some really interesting things about the church. Um, and, and her statements about the church really come directly from her beliefs about um, Christ's blood for us. Um, so one of the things, and really for the time, probably one of the most revolutionary things that she wrote about was that she had a vision of Christ's blood covering all types of people, all social classes, um, men and women, you know, everybody, um, and, and making us equal before God, um, which is a very scriptural thing to to assert but of course at the time um was was not part of the official theology of the church um but but it is a that that sort of leveling um and that all of us as brothers and sisters was foundational to her understanding of the church um you know she when she looked at the church um she didn't see the institution as much as she saw this community of people that had been redeemed by Jesus. Um, you know, Julian's vision of the church really feels timely to me in a lot of ways. Um, you know, even though we're not, um, you know, the American church isn't doing exactly the same things that the medieval church was doing at the time. We do see a lot of prejudice and greed and abuse um, in American churches. We do see um, this grasping for power and, and this enmeshing of Christianity and government in really dysfunctional ways. Um, but Julian was able to look at a deeply corrupt and dysfunctional church through the cross of Christ and see something entirely different, which was a, this blessed community in which we're all bound together through the blood of Jesus. And, and I think that we can also have that same vision where we see the church through the cross of Christ um, and, uh, you know, kind of open our eyes to a deeper reality that's there that um, can be harder to see. Um, one situation in which I feel like I've gotten a peek into some of this, um, this kind of community is in the Colossian Way group that I've been a part of. Um, we have been meeting for nine weeks. We have one more week to go. And every week we get together and we discuss Christian sexual ethics. Um, and if you had asked me a couple years ago, if I would ever lead a group at Oak Church talking about this, I would tell you that you were crazy, that this would cause division. And this would, this is not a good idea. We do not need to talk about these things out loud. Um, 
But, you know, nine weeks in, I can't say that I agree with everybody in the group and all of their opinions and, and beliefs about about this topic. But but I'm convinced that each person in the group is seeking to love God and one another as faithfully as they can. And and I have a deep respect and a lot of affection for everybody in that group. Um you know, the first night that we met, we each shared our fears about having these conversations together. And I shared that I was afraid that if we started to speak openly and honestly about this topic, that that we would break our church, that, that and it would be my fault because I'm leading the group. Um, but here's the thing. If the church is truly Christ's body, it's already been broken and The blood has already been poured out and it's through that breaking that we have been redeemed somehow mysteriously. And I'm not claiming I understand how it all works, but the church in all of its brokenness is also unbreakable. There's more than enough mercy for each of us and for all of us. We can bring these difficult questions and these disagreements to God and these very questions and disagreements and thorny issues that are hard to talk about. We can let these things take us right into God's heart, which is ultimately the safest place to be. Now I want to share with you a little bit about the image of the hazelnut. Um, And if you see pictures of Julian, she probably has a cat and she most likely is also holding something in her hand that's very small. And this is, um, this is probably one of her most famous visions. It's, it's the image of the, of the hazelnut. Um, And what she saw was she saw something small and she said about the size of a hazelnut. So like, you know, a marble or, or, you know, just something small. Um, in the palm of her hand, and she perceived that this this little round object was everything, everything that exists, everything that's ever been made. So the whole universe, you know, all the people, all the creatures, uh, all the planets, all the stars, um, and all time, past, present, future, all of it in the palm of her hand. And she perceived the smallness of it and the fragility of it. Um, And she asked God, you know what? Why doesn't it just fall to nothing? And she heard a response. It lasts and always will because I love it. And, And so this image of everything held in God's hand and upheld and created and preserved by God's love um, is is the image of the hazelnut. So the world is scary. Uh, and if you're paying attention, feelings of grief or anger or powerlessness or all of the above are very understandable. Um, but knowing that God is both infinitely powerful and infinitely loving, has created all things and sustains all things in love, for me at least, 
removes that feeling of futility. You know, sometimes I feel like um, when I'm dealing with various challenges, you know, I'm just beating my fists against a locked door. And on the other side of that door is the people who hold all the power. Um, but when I keep in mind this image of the hazelnut, um, it's more like I'm beating my fists against the chest of a loving parent who holds the universe in his hand. And that feels really different. Um, this image of the hazelnut recalibrates me in another way too. It means that I don't have to try to scheme or dominate or control other people or situations. Um, I can rest in the knowledge that I am held and that you are held, that those in the highest echelons of power are held. Um, it doesn't mean I don't continue to work for the good of others, for justice and for mercy, but it means that I can work with a sense of hope and confidence. And then finally, um, Julian's most famous quote is, um, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Um, it's, it's probably the words that people most associate with Julian. Um, and I imagine they're probably also the reason that some folks dismiss Julian as being kind of out of touch or pie in the sky. Um, but I hope that you can see by now that Julian is really clear eyed about the world and the senseless brutality um, and injustice. You know, the the way that this phrase came about, she she brought the question of sin and suffering in the world to God. And, and this was her answer. Um, it reminds me of when Jesus tells his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Um, and I think it's interesting he says this before he's crucified or resurrected. Um, you know, it kind of goes back for me to this vision of the hazelnut. It, it's all time, all space, everything is in the palm of God's hand. Um, and Jesus was conqueror before his crucifixion and resurrection. And he is still conqueror now. Um, you know, we, he is held and we are all held. Julian sees all things through the reality of Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection. And when we can do the same, we can live confidently in the steadfast and tender love of Jesus. We can stand up to injustice, both inside and outside the church. And we can grieve the pain and destruction caused by sin and evil in the world. And we can do these things with hope and even joy. Now, I hope you'll join me as I pray. This is the, the prayer that is uh, that was specifically written for St. Julian's feast day. Pray with me. Triune God, Father and Mother to us all, who showed your servant Julian revelations of your nurturing and sustaining love, move our hearts like hers to seek you above all things, for in giving us yourself, you give us all. Amen.